Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Jacob Fry, we have a yes or no question for you. Will you commit to defunding Minneapolis Police Department? We don't want no more police. Is that clear? We don't want people with guns toting around in our community, shooting us down. It is a yes or a no. Will you defund the Minneapolis Police Department? That was the question protesters had for Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry over the weekend. And when he said he did not support the full abolition of the police, chants of shame, shame, shame followed him out. Hello, everyone. I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director. This is The Daily DC. Today, George Floyd is being laid to rest in Houston next to his mother, who he called out for in his last moments of life. And as the country mourns and his loved ones say their final goodbyes, new videos have emerged of police killings of black men. In New Mexico, a suspect dying in a chokehold. In New Jersey, a trooper shooting an unarmed black man. And in Austin, Texas, video released of another black man, Javier Ambler, telling police he can't breathe before dying in their custody. All of this amplifying the spotlight on policing in America, including the question of defunding the police. Despite pushback from national leaders, the movement is gaining steam on a local level, including in Minneapolis, where George Floyd died over two weeks ago. Over the weekend, the city council announced its intention to dismantle the police department there. Joining me now to discuss more on his city's plan to eliminate the police department is Minneapolis City Councilman Steve Fletcher. Councilman Fletcher, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Can you just step back for a moment and tell our listeners what is the action the city council is planning to take and why you think it's the best solution to the problem we saw in Minneapolis? So the action that we're planning to take is to disband the police department that we currently have and to create a new public safety department with a broader mission and an entirely different approach to public safety. And that looks like what? It looks like trying to get the right response to the right calls. So right now we send police to a huge range of calls that often they're not the best responders to. And our goal is to respond with a compassionate and effective response that actually solves problems, whether that's mental health professionals, whether that's social outreach. There's all kinds of situations where the best person we could send is not who we're sending right now. I'm sure you're following the national debate going on over this right now. There are a lot of activists using the term defund the police. As you said, you and your colleagues are proposing to just completely disbanding the police force as it currently exists. Some people interpret the defund the police as sort of redirecting resources into the kinds of services you're talking about without the full dismantling of a force. If you could explain to us 
why you think reform in some way can't work, but that it actually needs to be completely disbanded. Sure. You know, it's been interesting to be in national discussions because we get a lot of suggestions about what reforms we should try. People say you should do body cams, you should do community policing. You know, there's a whole lot of ideas about what might work. And it always sort of deflates the conversation when I tell them that we've done all of those things. We've had all of our officers go through implicit bias training. We've had all of our officers participate in this whole procedural justice process, which is kind of the cutting edge of reform thinking in that industry. And it is not producing the culture change that we need. And so in a lot of cases, I think part of the reason that we're at the point that we are is that we have been proactive about reform and those reforms have been rejected or failed. And so we're to a place where we need to make a more structural change. You said, I guess in the New York Times, you were quoted as saying, it's very easy as an activist to call for the abolishment of the police. It is a heavier decision when you realize that it's your constituents that are going to be the victim's of crime you can't respond to if you dismantle that without an alternative. I guess my question for you is, what do you tell your constituents who say, so if somebody is uh, breaking into my home, who do I call? You know, we just, it's such a mind shift, right? I remember back to my third grade lessons about community and police. I get this outdated message, but I'm sure you have constituents that say, well, wait, there's no police force. Who do I call to protect my house if somebody's breaking in? Yeah. So first of all, let me give credit to activists because I saw that quote in the New York Times too and and a little bit out of context. I felt like it was dismissive of incredible work that the activists in Minneapolis have been doing for years to build towards a vision of what policing could look like outside of our current policing structure. And that's actually very important, I think, because, you know, part of our sense that we have a vision and that we have something to move forward to is that activists who started by calling for abolition didn't stop there. They started building a vision and they started doing the research and doing their homework and thinking about those solutions. And we are going to have to now have a much broader community conversation because we need to answer exactly that question. And I've been challenging everybody to really think about what was your last interaction with police? Because you're right that since elementary school, we've been told to equate safety with policing, call 911 if you see something, you know, uh, they're the people who will help. And when you actually ask people, what was your last interaction like? Some people say it was harmful. Some people say it just wasn't that helpful. So the story that we have is if somebody's breaking into my house, I'm going to call the police and they're going to show up with guns and stop that. But that's not usually the situation that we're talking about. Usually they show up after somebody's already gone. They take a report. It's almost an insurance function that doesn't need to be done by people with guns. And that's the a huge majority of the work that we're talking about. So we are going to have to have a real community conversation about what kind of response do we need that can respond to violence and the threat of violence? And what does that response look like? And it is not an easy conversation. It is not something that we will have consensus about. It is not something that will result in zero capacity to respond with armed force. In your vision, Councilman, and again, I hear conversations yet to be had. You're at the beginning of this process, not the end. I totally understand that. But in your vision, there are still Minneapolis police officers in some form walking around with sidearm. You know, I don't know that they're out walking around. I mean, I think, you know, there's a different dispatch model maybe for situations where we know that force is needed. But I think certainly the vision is that we're not ever leading with a gun and a badge as the thing that we bring to a situation when we don't have a reason to believe that that's absolutely necessary. I think that 
the question of what does that look like? What kind of guardrails do we put on it? How do we decide when it's appropriate? Uh, is the kind of thing that we have to figure out over a long period of time. And so there's going to be a transition period. There's going to be a period where we are responding to 911 calls the way we always have until we've designed the thing that is, you know, that's going to replace it. And, you know, I think the path forward is to do that visioning work and to name that in most situations, it's potentially escalatory and not actually helpful to send someone who has the threat of arrest and authorized use of force as the thing that they bring into the situation. Yeah. I mean, calling the police officer like we learned you do in third grade is not the same thing for everybody in every community. That's right. Obviously. The head of your local NAACP, uh, Leslie Redman, told CNN that they've been implementing a community alternative to policing with even armed citizen patrols. Is that something that is appealing to you or you think has a way to work into this new version? You know, my gut instinct is no. I hope not. But I I want to hear from community about why that might be the right response and what that might look like. I think that that's, that is going to be one of the toughest conversations that we have is how do we relate to weapons? How do we relate to firearms? And who has them and why? And, and what does that look like? It is a challenge for safety. One of the things that drives people's sense of safety all over this country is our inability to regulate the number of guns on the street. And, you know, that is certainly going to be a factor that shapes what kinds of solutions we're able to consider. And just so I understand, until all these conversations are had, plans developed, questions answered, there would be the current police force in place? Yep. So we have to figure out a short-term solution, and we don't want to impose a short-term solution without doing a lot more listening first, and so we may have to have an interim solution. We are in a place where our police department is creating a crisis for our city. We are being sued many different ways over many different things that the police department has done over the last couple of weeks. And we've been making payouts for, you know, excessive force lawsuits over the last seven years. And so at some point that becomes untenable and it's our fiduciary obligation to stop that problem from driving our city into a fiscal crisis. On that note, we're going to take a brief pause. We'll have a lot more with Councilman Fletcher in just a moment. We're back with Minneapolis City Councilman Steve Fletcher. You ran for city council on a platform of police reform, but can you take us through the evolution of when the sort of platform of reform you ran on morphed into dismantling the police department in its entirety? Uh, you know, I think it's been very similar to my constituents, although certainly I've, I've gotten a very inside view of how this stuff works. But most of us hoped that we could fix it. I think most of us had the vision that we'd grown up with that we hoped was salvageable. And we have seen it so resisted in important ways and in really mundane ways. So small policy changes that we've tried to make have been rejected. You know, we saw the mayor try to ban warrior training, which is this video series that people watch that really encourages them to be desperately afraid of every human interaction that they have because anybody might pull a gun on them at any time. And so it's a really toxic training in terms of encouraging sort of panic shootings. It felt like kind of a symbolic fight, but even that, you know, there's the police federation resisted every minor attempt at even symbolic reforms. And so there's not a lot of hope at this point. Um, and even the big stuff, you know, we, we watched our, our chief, who I think is the person who most could have reformed this department if it was possible. He has tremendous vision and heart. And, you know, even when he terminated officers 
for excessive force. Uh, arbitrators would send them back. The, the Federation would defend them, and, and he would end up with them back out on the street against his will. And I don't know how you improve a culture where you can't even get rid of people who violate that culture to the extreme. As you know, uh, the mayor of your city is not in favor of dismantling uh, the police department in its entirety. I wonder, what's your message to him when you hear him say that abolishing the police entirely is not the right way to go? Uh, you know, I think it's, I, you know, I think it's clear that he and I disagree. I think that he, I, I hope he gets there. And beyond that, I'm going to, I'm going to resist the temptation to communicate with him through the media. He's got my phone number. Uh, I've got his phone number and, and I do hope that we can work together. I think the legacy of the people in city government at this moment uh, is going to be what we do next. And, and I hope that he uh, digs in to be a part of it. Do you need him to be on board? How, how does the actual functioning of the government work there? Is this purely in the purview of the council? Uh, so the way our charter is structured, the police department reports to the mayor and the budget is approved by the council. So we have leverage. We have levers of power. We don't have the ability to directly write policy for the police department. So that reform has always had to go through the mayor's office to the extent that we're doing reform efforts. But budgetary approval is something that, uh, you know, essentially the nine of us getting out there and saying this is the path we're getting on, this is where we're going, is a way of signaling you don't have budgetary support for what you're envisioning here. And nine of you, that's a veto-proof majority, is it not? That is a veto-proof majority. I want you to take a listen to what the police chief in Houston had to say about your city council's plan. Disbanding the police is, uh, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's an in invitation to chaos. That's not what this nation's about. Uh, I hope that what the city council of Minneapolis is saying is that maybe their department needs to reinvent itself. There's a way to actually do those things, but uh, to, to do it uh, just from the hip uh, would be disastrous for any city. What's your response? I think that if we start from an assumption that we had a stable system that was working that somehow the council is destabilizing now with our actions, then I would understand his perspective. But that is not how we're experiencing uh, our lives in Minneapolis right now. We are not starting from a system that works. We are not starting from a system that is reliably protecting us. We are not starting from a system that feels like it's behaving predictably. In fact, it's behaving wildly unpredictably and provoking uh, significant chaos. So when I hear this sounds like it could provoke chaos. Uh, I feel like we're trying to get our work our way out of chaos. Because you are a politician and an elected official, I do want to delve into the politics of this uh, for a moment um, and broaden it out uh, nationally, of course. But I want you to hear from the Democratic uh, standard bearer, Joe Biden, uh, presidential candidate. He spoke to CBS News yesterday and was asked about this notion of defunding the police. Here's what Vice President Biden had to say. No, I don't support defunding the police. I support conditioning federal aid to police based on whether or not they meet certain basic standards of decency and honorableness and, in fact, are able to demonstrate they can protect the community and everybody in the community. And Joe Biden is is not alone, uh, Councilman. As you may have seen, uh, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, uh, Senators Joe Manchin and Dick Durbin, uh, even Jim Clyburn, uh, from South Carolina, the the majority whip, uh, all sort of wanted to step away from the uh, defund the police movement and the abolishment of police departments. They seem to think uh, it's a terrible idea politically. What what do you say? You know, I 
I know what's happening locally. I know what people who live in Minneapolis are telling me they need and want. I am not thinking about politics much right now. I think it's actually pretty important that we focus on solutions and that we focus on safety. Uh, and I would invite you know anybody who's skeptical of this and and you know I, I think particularly Mr. Biden into conversation about what we've tried, about how we would measure uh, qualification for those kinds of standards, about the reasons that we're skeptical about that kind of an approach. Uh, I, I would love to be in dialogue with him at least, and I, I wouldn't necessarily expect that at a national level this is something that's... I, I don't do national politics. Uh, do you support I, his bid for the presidency? I'm assuming he'll be the Democratic nominee and I'll be supporting him. Even if uh, he doesn't adopt sort of what you guys are proposing? You know, I think sometimes the farther politics gets from the local, the more challenging it can get. Uh, but I know that locally in our community, we're going to do what our community needs, and we're frankly not going to worry about national noise about it. I mean, local politics can get tricky too, of course, I'm sure you know. Um, <laughs> finally, before I let you go, sir, I do, I do want to just ask about the community. And obviously, your community has gone through a and is going through a very painful time and um, is doing so in the glare of the national spotlight as well. And I'm just wondering, you're talking to people all the time who live in your city, who live in uh, the district you represent. How are your constituents doing right now? You know, I think people are in shock. We've had compounding crises with COVID and then the tragedy of George Floyd's killing, the demonstrations and the police violence that followed. And I, I, you know, I think people are reeling. I mean, people are really feeling, you know, deeply shaken. And I think that as we have these conversations where we start to envision the future and we start to talk about safety, people are finding that in many cases a relief to be talking about solutions and to be starting to talk about the future and, and a future that we feel like rises to the moment and is responsive to the very serious times that we're living through. Minneapolis City Councilman Steve Fletcher, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And a special thanks to our listeners as well. Remember, we publish a new episode every weeknight, so please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. While you're there, consider leaving a rating or a comment. It helps people find the show. And if you want to tweet about this podcast, please do so using the hashtag TheDailyDC. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.